Good morning, everyone. Great to see you this morning. And although that was the bumper sermon uh, video for the previous series, it actually fits with today's sermon anyway. So, hey, God is still in control. <laughs> but it's good to be with you this morning and to study God's Word together for this part of the service. So why don't I just say a short prayer asking God to be with us as we go ahead and read some passages of Scripture. Will you bow your heads with me as uh, much as you're able to? <clears throat> Dear God, we do ask for your help this morning just to open our hearts, Lord, and to ponder your words to us, God. It truly is amazing to think about the fact that you have spoken to us, Lord, that you have told us who we are and why we're here. Help us, Lord, to just marvel at that a little bit this morning as we read some of your words to us, and we ask your Holy Spirit, God, to apply them to our lives. Speak to us this morning, God, and change us to be more like your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I was shopping at a 99-cent-only store a few years ago with my father when he discovered this book that made a really big impact on me. And it made a big impact on me because the book is about a young man in 2003 who actually attempted to murder his whole family. Sorry, I'm starting off with an emotional story this morning. I apologize for that. But this, this young man in Texas in 2003, he told his parents a lie. He said, I took my last exam for university. I'm done with college. And so to celebrate, his family took him out to dinner at a restaurant. Little did they know that this was all part of his murderous plot to eliminate his family so he could inherit their estate and be wealthy. When they came home from dinner, his accomplice was waiting in the house and sure enough, ambushed his entire family one by one as they entered the residence. But what he wasn't counting on was that one of his family members would survive. His father survived the ambush and he went on to write this book that I just told you about describing what it's like to be the father to a son who plotted to murder his entire family and who got convicted for it. And when I think about that, that shocking story, one of the many questions that comes to mind is, how does Jesus treat people like that? In other words, how does Jesus treat the absolute worst sinners the people who not only love doing evil, but who sign other people up with them to join them in doing evil. The people who shamelessly crush others to advance their own selfish ambitions in life. How does Jesus treat the worst of all sinners. And it's an important question to ask because as followers of Jesus, that will inform us as well. How do we relate to those who are devoted to doing wrong more perhaps than most other people? And the answer to the question, of course, is as shocking to hear today as it was when Jesus was walking on the earth. Because the way that Jesus relates to the absolute most sinful people of all is that he eats meals with them. 
Jesus, the judge of the universe, who will leave no sin unpunished when the story of our world concludes, walked the earth 2,000 years ago and sat down around tables with the worst of all sinners and ate meals. Let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. And in uh, chapter 9, we'll start reading in verse 9. And as we start reading here in Matthew's gospel, see if you can hear how Jesus ate meals with the worst sinners. Starting in verse 9, it says this. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. So Jesus is walking along, and he sees Matthew and says, Follow me. And already that's shocking and a bit confusing, because as you might know, tax collectors were not exactly welcomed members of society. They were extortionists who preyed on the people of Israel, stealing money from them to enrich themselves and doing it all while serving their Roman oppressors. As a result, the Jewish people did not welcome tax collectors in any of their places of worship. They could not come in. Moreover, they listed tax collectors on a list that included robbers and murderers as the worst of all sinners. And so it's shocking that Jesus would say to a tax collector, follow me. It's also shocking that he would follow Jesus. That apparently after witnessing Jesus' ministry and miracles... That just to hear Jesus look at him and say, come, he would get up and Luke's gospel tells us he left everything. Matthew apparently is too humble to point that out. But Luke says he left everything and began to follow Jesus. Left his power, his wealth, his prestige among his associates and follows a homeless preacher named Jesus. But then... The shocking nature of the account continues because Matthew throws a party for Jesus in Jesus' honor, presumably to tell his friends about his decision to follow Jesus. Only problem is that when you're a tax collector, all your friends are the worst. No normal person in society would come anywhere near you it would be social suicide to even be seen speaking 
to a thief, a thief like a tax collector. And so commentaries surmise that when it says he sat down with sinners, that these could be prostitutes, murderers, robbers, and extortionists like Matthew. And Jesus sits down with these people and has a warm, friendly dinner party with them. And so when was the last time that you enjoyed a meal with the worst of sinners? Now, most of us, maybe, maybe I shouldn't say most, many of us would perhaps say, well, never. I never have had a meal with someone like that, much less a room full of them. And the defense that we would give probably wouldn't be too different than the defense that the Pharisees would have given. The reason why they don't eat with tax collectors and sinners. And that is we would be afraid of being influenced by them in one way or another. You see, the Pharisees, they believed that if they ate with people like that, that they would be ceremonially and spiritually defiled. And before we throw them under the bus, we have to acknowledge that they're actually onto something. They're not completely wrong in their fear of associating with the likes of tax collectors and sinners. Because you see, the Bible does warn against naively relating to those who love evil. Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Proverbs chapter 13. The companion of fools will suffer harm. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Bad company corrupts good character. And so the Pharisees aren't completely off base to be shocked and surprised that Jesus would draw so close to people who are so devoted to wrongdoing. And yet he does. He sits down with them and spends time with them and eats with them. Why? Because Jesus knows that influence, it goes both ways. Sure, you can be influenced, tempted to adopt a sinful lifestyle or fall into to, to danger yourself by drawing too close, too naively to those who are predators. But Jesus knows that he also carries with him a message of new life. That he can get close enough to people like the Apostle Paul when he was still a murderer and bring them from death to life. That he can share the news of why he came into the world and that the worst of all sinners can drink deeply from the fountain of forgiveness and be utterly transformed from the inside out by the mercy and grace of God. And as followers of Jesus, if we want to be like him, then we too have to recognize that there is an appropriate way to fellowship with those who don't know God 
And even with those who our religious circles or society say are the farthest away from God, the worst of all people. Because after all, isn't it the sick who need a doctor? And isn't Jesus the great physician who carries with him the antidote to sin? And isn't it far worse to be someone who society says is upstanding and religious but doesn't think they need forgiveness than it is to be a social outcast, locked up in prison, who falls on his knees and says, I'm guilty, God, please forgive me. My, my family has a, a friend, family friend, who is serving two life sentences in prison. I didn't even know that you could stack life sentences on top of each other, but apparently you can. And when my family learned that he had received such a heavy sentence, they instantly began writing him letters, eventually having phone calls with him, praying for him regularly. In fact, we probably talk about him, pray for him, communicate with him more now than we did after he and I became adults and kind of drifted apart. How, you know how that happens. You become adults and you, you drift apart. And I think the reason that my family instantly reconnected with this childhood friend of mine, just, just covering him in their love and prayers, is because of the mercy and love of God. It's not because my family thought for a second that he definitely didn't do anything wrong or that his sentence was somehow unjust. We really don't know. But we also knew that Jesus shows mercy to everyone. And my family instantly wanted to be the voice and encouragement of God's love and forgiveness in the life of this friend. And by God's grace... His life has been transformed. He's become an on-fire follower of Jesus in prison, an evangelist in the middle of the prison where he finds himself at this point in life. And so this morning, I will ask you, when was the last time you hugged a trans person? Is there someone in your family or community that's in the LGBTQ community? And if so, when was the last time you invited them to get coffee with you so you could hear about what's going on in their life? Do you know someone who's been sent to prison, probably for crimes they did commit, who society would say is not worth your time because of what they've done? When was the last time you wrote them a letter because you believe that they're just the person who Jesus came to forgive and to transform. When was the last time you greeted the colleague at work who nobody likes because they're the worst? When was the last time you stood next to the person you don't want to be seen next to lest you be lumped in with the likes of a crooked employee like that? 
Because Jesus came for people like that. If he could save us, then he can save anyone. And may we never let a dead, empty religion make us so cold-hearted that we stop extending mercy to those who need it the most. One of the number one reasons that people don't show mercy, ironically, is religion. It's cold, empty, dead religion. Religion that follows all of the outward signs of worshiping a God of mercy, but never connects its heart even for a moment to receive mercy from the God of mercy. And you know how it starts? Oftentimes it's when we get busy or excited about life. Maybe your boss uh, gives you an opportunity at work that's it's a huge chance for you to take your career to the next level. It's going to be hard work and challenging, but you know that this is exactly the moment you've been waiting for, and so you dive right in. You waste no time solving the problem, recruiting the team, attacking this opportunity. So much time, so much energy, that that week when you wake up each morning to say your prayers, certainly God will understand that that week, they're a bit hurried and a bit formal and a bit of something you need to check off to get to work because your mind's already thinking about the important task ahead. And you still make it to church as the weeks go by and the prayers get more and more distracted and formal. You're a Christian, so you're not going to skip your prayers. You're not that dumb. And you even make it to church on Sunday. And you mouth the words and you bow your head at all the right time, but you're exhausted half the time because of how much energy you've been putting into the project. And the other half, especially the boring part where the pastor's talking, your mind is rolling over the task at work, trying to crunch the numbers and solve the problems. And because you are a Christian, you don't even skip Bible study. In fact, you lead it a time or two. But after maybe months have passed, you have a moment of clarity, almost like God shakes you in the middle of the night. I know this has happened to me. I just woke up in the middle of the night and I realized, oh, it's been months and I haven't said a word to you, God. I've mouthed the prayers and I've been to the services, but I've never spoken to you in months. My heart has been so preoccupied with something so much bigger and more important than you that you have become nothing but an outward formality, an appearance of godliness while my heart is obsessed with a different God altogether. And we shouldn't be surprised as we wander down that path of dead religion that our lives lack more and more mercy for those around us. Why would we be patient and kind to an irritating cashier why would we not step over someone in need? 
Why would we not even consider taking the time to write a convicted killer when we haven't basked in God's mercy and forgiveness for us in months? We're doing just fine. We're upright religious people, not objects of grace and mercy, obsessed with telling others about what a good and merciful God who's forgiven us and who forgives us every day and who we love more than anything in this world. Nope. We don't even know him. Our best friend has become a stranger as we've ignored him week after week and month after month. Let's read the next verse. It's verse 13, and we'll just read the first part of it here because Jesus is continuing his answer to the Pharisees. And what does he say in verse 13? But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He says to them, go and learn what this means. That's a common phrase, which is really a rebuke. It's a way of a teacher saying to someone, you should already know this, but you don't. And then he quotes from Hosea chapter 6. A book of the Bible where God is rebuking his people for having all the outward forms of religion, like sacrifice, but having hearts that are far away from God. And the proof that God cites is their lives are void of mercy and justice. And how can your life have no mercy and justice towards the hurting and suffering around you if when you go to worship God of mercy, you receive mercy in your heart from that God? There's just no way. There's no way that your prayers to a God of mercy are sincere and your worship touches your heart if you turn around and are merciless to the hurting, the sick, the lonely, the hungry, it's a dead giveaway. Your religion is fake. It's a formality. It's to make you feel better, not to connect your heart to God and receive his forgiveness from God. And so Jesus points out that they're making the same mistake that was made back in the book of Hosea when God's people had a form of religion that was utterly disconnected from their heart. And so may we not allow ourselves to drift from God, but may we soak in his mercy so that we can pass it on to others. May we make the sacrifice of not just praying when we don't feel like it, which is important, but of really praying when we pray. Of not just attending worship even when it's tempting to sleep in, which is honorable, but of also pausing and connecting with the Lord and saying, God, I don't want to just be in your house and never acknowledge in my heart that you are here and that the words that I am saying are true. I have a friend who's in his later years in life, and yet of all the time I've had the pleasure of knowing him, he just seems to be more in love with God than he's ever been. He wakes up 
uh, early in the morning, his face is just beaming with, with joy. And he, he wakes up, I believe, at 4 a.m. in the morning. And he, he reads his Bible and he says his prayers. And then he emails me in a, in a small group of, of other men, uh, usually just a prayer. He'll put the verse he's read and then a prayer, usually asking God to help him to live out this, this passage of Scripture. And the other day I was supposed to meet with his wife and him. But they were late. They didn't show up. And then finally they came. And he didn't even come in. His wife comes in. And she says, oh, I'm sorry. We were getting gas before we came here. And he saw a, a young man sitting in an alley behind the gas station. So I saw him clamber down in the alley and go towards this guy. He said that he was, he was shivering back there in the distance. When he got to him, he saw he was shivering. So he took off his jacket and he wrapped it, you know, his nice big jacket. Yeah, he took it off and he wrapped it around his shoulders. He asked him if he could buy him some food. He gave him a gospel of John and he told him about Jesus. And when she said that, you know, by the time she finished this brief explanation, he came in, we never talked about it again, the day went on. But this one thought went through my head. Of course he did. That was all I thought. Of course he did. As I pictured this elderly man in a dark alley, bent over a young, troubled, cold youth. How could he not? This man is so infatuated, and not just that, but devoted and in awe of Jesus and what he's done in his life and the grace that he gets from him every day that he carries around gospels of John with him everywhere he goes waiting and looking for the chance to show God's mercy to those around him and so we may we make that sacrifice to genuinely connect with God to really talk to him when we talk to him and worship him when we worship him so that our hearts can be filled with his mercy and grace so that we have more than empty words and, 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 and damnation to offer those who are hurting and who need help the most. And as we offer that help, I think my friend's example of caring for that uh, homeless man, which by the way I know is a difficult and complicated topic. But I like the fact that he handed him a gospel of John too. It's, it's fitting actually for this passage that we're going to look at. Because you see, as we finish off reading this passage, what we're going to realize is that Jesus cared about all suffering. Not just physical suffering earthly suffering. So you can pretty much get everyone to agree with you, I feel, if you say we should show mercy to the hungry by trying to get them food or, or, or work for the unemployed or friendliness to the social outcasts. But sometimes when you say that the most important mercy to show someone has to do with the eternal state of their soul, with helping them find Jesus in heaven, 
sometimes you even start to lose Christians a little bit. Because their immediate needs are so pressing. Why are you talking about forgiveness of sins in Jesus? They just need food. They need work. And now you're going on to this fanciful, mystical. But you see, that wasn't the way Jesus saw it at all. Jesus certainly fed thousands who were hungry. He healed the sick. He befriended the social outcasts. But at the heart of Jesus' mission was a mission to save people not from temporal, momentary pain, but from the suffering of an eternity away from God. That was the core of his mission. Let's look at the last part of this verse. In the last part of verse 13. The second part of that verse, he says, For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. He says, I didn't come to call the righteous, meaning commentators say people who think they're righteous, like you Pharisees. But I came to call sinners. Call them what? To follow him. Call them what? Luke's gospel clarifies In this account, Luke's gospel says, to repentance. In other words, to forsake their sins and trust in Jesus for salvation. For new life that starts now and goes on forever with Jesus. Why else would Matthew leave his riches if not for the opportunity to follow the one who could save his soul forever. That's why Matthew followed Jesus. And quite frankly, if we think that we are being merciful like Jesus by simply stopping at caring for the outward, physical types of suffering, loneliness, hunger, unemployment, And we never devote ourselves to sharing the message of salvation, of heaven, for the lost. Not only are we wrong and falling short of Jesus' mission, but we're actually cruel. If you consider the suffering of eternity versus the suffering of this brief and momentary life. That's why I love serving with a number of organizations, but God's Pantry is one of them. Because whenever I get to serve with God's Pantry, we, we help people who are hungry to get food. We, we get to see the looks on their faces as we fill the shopping carts with fresh, well, sometimes not so fresh, but edible, <laughs> edible food of all sorts and types. But then what makes me love God's Pantry so much more is that after we filled the shopping cart with food, we asked them, they're asked at many of the locations, if they want prayer, can we pray for you? And they, at some of the locations, do their best to connect them with local churches. And that's what makes me want to be there and serve with God's pantry. Because I don't just want to fill their stomachs, as important and biblical as it is, but I want to fill their soul with the bread of life, 
eternal life through Jesus Christ. And I remember I went to one of God's pantries with my friend Linda Merrill, and I didn't even know I was going to tell this, so hopefully she doesn't mind me throwing her under the bus. But she had the opportunity to share Jesus with several people and have them pray right there on the spot to receive forgiveness of their sins and to follow Jesus. And so may we not stop short of just caring about the temporary hunger and, and human suffering, but may we follow Jesus' example and come to call sinners to repentance. And you might be thinking, well, how exactly do I do that? Linda Merrill makes it look easy. And um, I, I, there's this book I love called Honest Evangelism. And the author Rico Tice, he, he explains a simple way that we might consider sharing Jesus. We might consider calling people to repent, I guess you could say, with family, with friends, with colleagues who we get to know. And the first thing he says, actually, and I, I like his list because it sounds like something even I could do. And uh, the first one he says is just ask, ask questions. Ask people questions and show genuine interest in them. He says, if they love to garden, ask them about gardening. And don't make them feel like they're just a project, but realize that they're made in the image of God and that they have interests and hobbies that are fascinating. And he says, you, you shouldn't be surprised if you show genuine interest in other people. They'll often show genuine interest in you as well. And when they ask you questions back, he says, at times you're going to share about your love for God or about a service project you had at church or about what you're learning in your Bible study because that's part of who you are. And so he says, ask questions. Just ask them good questions. Show interest in who they are as people. And then next he says, show kindness to them. And invite them to show kindness with you. Be thoughtful and serve them when they're in a jam and they need help. Or maybe remember their birthday and write them a card. And beyond that, invite them to come and serve the homeless with you. Or to serve at an outreach event at your church. This is called letting your light shine before men, as Jesus put it. So that they can see your good deeds and praise your father in heaven. So he says, ask them good questions. Show them kindness and invite them to show kindness with you. Then he says, and I'm putting this one in my own words, but he says, ask them spiritual questions. In other words, if they love gardening, maybe at some point you say, what do you think is behind the beauty and wonder of this natural world? Or if they're in a difficult situation, ask them, how do you find meaning in life when it's so hard and there's so much suffering? And he says, if you're, if you're intentional enough to ask questions like that, there's a good chance the conversation will go in a deeper, more spiritual direction. And that leads to the last point where he says, be ready when the opportunity arises to share Jesus with them, to tell them where you find hope, 
and what gives life meaning for you even when it's hard and why you have the strength to face each day. And, um, and that's his, his outline, his strategy for, for loving and caring for people and waiting for opportunities to share the good news of Jesus Christ with them. I wanted to conclude by telling you the conclusion of the young man who attempted to murder his whole family. <laughs> it's okay. We'll end with the gut-wrenching one like we began, I suppose. And in uh, 2018, after many years on death row, the young man's father was sitting in a waiting room to be escorted to the viewing room to watch his last remaining family member be executed. In 30 minutes before it was time to go to the viewing room, he received a call. And the governor of Texas, for the first time in years, had granted clemency to his son. And when they asked the governor why he would do that, he said, partially because the boy's father reached out to me and asked me to have mercy on his son, clemency on his son. The boy's father in the book says that he forgave his son. He's a devoted follower of Jesus. And he says that his son has had a change of heart as well. They read uh, Rick Warren's book, A Purpose Driven Life, uh, together. And when I think about that story, I can't help but think about the mercy of God, the heart of God that would look at people who have sinned against him and who would be certainly a God of justice, but also a God of mercy, who sends his son into the world so that anyone, anyone who believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for the opportunity to just read and reflect on a few of um, the words, Lord, from the Bible this morning. Every time we do, God, we're challenged and, and more questions come up. You're so merciful to us, Lord, to give us your words and to call us, Lord, to be transformed. And so, Lord, this morning I do ask for your mercy on us. God, continue to be so incredibly patient with us as we stumble forward in this process of trying to avail ourselves of the wonderful life that you've given us in Jesus Christ. Continue to help us to extend that mercy, Lord, with wisdom to those, to those around us so that we could be ever more in love with you and ever more effective at drawing others into a love relationship with you. God, be with us now as we stand and worship, move on our hearts, and um, even be with us, Lord, as we hang out and just chat following the service. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.